one of my favorite passages of Scripture here uh, in the chapter, and especially towards the end. It's only 18 verses long, but we're going to be taking up our time, I think profitably spent, in our study of 2 Corinthians chapter 3 here, beginning at verse 1. Paul's saying, Do we begin again to commend ourselves, or do we need, as some others, epistles of condemnation to you, or letters of commendation from you? You are our epistle, written in our hearts, known and read by all men. You notice in these first two verses, Paul mentions something not, <coughs> excuse me, epistles, an epistle is just a letter, by the way, not epistles of condemnation, but epistles of commendation. A letter of recommendation is what he's talking about. And such letters were common and necessary in the early church. You know, a false prophet or an apostle could travel from city to city and easily say, well, Paul sent me, so you should support me. Put me up in your house for a couple weeks while I prophesy to the church. And, you know, the guy's just a scam. He's just a, a making off of people. So how could you know if somebody was for real? Well, if they had a legitimate letter of commendation from somebody else, a letter of recommendation signed by the Apostle Paul, that's pretty good credentials, isn't it? So this sort of letter was common in the ancient world. And uh, Paul himself sent letters of commendation on many occasions. You see this in Romans, 1 Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians. Paul himself let, sent letters of commendation. But Paul is saying very clearly here in verse uh, 1 of chapter 3, do we begin again to commend ourselves, or do we need some other's epistles of commendation? In other words, Paul's saying, you Corinthian Christians have been slamming me, the apostle, Paul's saying, what, am I supposed to whip out some letter of recommendation to you to prove that I'm really an apostle? To prove that I'm really called of God and sent from God? And notice what he says here in verse 2. It's so great. He says, you are our epistle. He says, you want to see my letter of recommendation? It's the Corinthian Christians. It's the Christians in Galatia. It's the Ephesian Christians. Every church where I've planted, every life that I've impacted for Jesus Christ, that's my letter of recommendation. And Paul says that the letter is written in our hearts, and it's known and read by all men. Now let me point this out. There is nothing wrong with having a letter of commendation. But how much better to have a living letter of recommendation? Now again, this was a practice in the early church when a person would travel from one city to another. It seems to be a custom that they would carry with them. Let's say you were going from the church of Galatia to the church at Ephesus. You would take with you something written from the leaders in the church of Galatia saying, you know, this is so-and-so, and he comes from our church with a good letter of recommendation. And, you know, so the people would know you and that they'd have a head start. And sometimes pastors do that in an informal sense. It seems today that sort of the, the philosophy has changed. It's it's that people want a letter of recommendation from the church before they'll come to the church instead of the other way around. I know it's kind of humorous, and I don't need to poke fun, and I'll probably regret that I'm saying any of this to you here tonight. But, you know, it just seems to me lately it's kind of struck me curious, and not curious because I would do the same thing. But somebody will come to our church, perhaps for the first time, they'll say, well, do you have any information about the church? Can you tell us what you believe? Can you give us a list of doctrine? And all that's fine and appropriate. But there's times I scratch my head and say, hey, buddy, what do you believe? Why don't, you tell, why don't you fill out an application? You know, you know, where's your letter of recommendation? And, you know, of course, I'm not trying to cast light on what they know, but it's just kind of interesting, the dynamic that was there in the ancient church and the dynamic in the church today. But beyond all whatever might be good or fine about a written letter of recommendation, how much better to have a living letter? And Paul says, the Corinthian churches, as well as the other churches, you are our living letter to prove our ministry. Let me give you another analogy that might relate to in the church today. 
If you were to go into my uh, church office there, uh, you would see up on the wall, not in a very prominent place, but it's up there, uh, uh, a letter or a certificate of ordination. It says that on such and such day I was ordained to pastoral ministry. And, and many people think that a certificate of ordination means that you have the credentials of ministry. Well, while there is an important purpose in a public ordination of ministry, a piece of paper in itself will never be a proper credential. The true credentials of ministry are changed lives, living epistles. So in that sense, Paul's like saying, look, keep your paper to yourself. Show us the changed lives from your ministry. That's your letter of recommendation. That's your proof of ordination. And I'll tell you, there's something to be said for it. You want to look at the work that a pastor or a minister or an apostle or anybody's doing? Take a look at their people. That's their letter of recommendation. Now, I think it's also interesting here, as Paul continues on here in verse 3, he points out, you are manifestly an epistle of Christ ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. I think this is wonderful, because Paul I think in verse 2, he kind of got a little tripped out on this idea of a living letter of recommendation. So in verse 3, he just carries forth the analogy further. He says, you are an epistle of Christ. So Paul's letter of recommendation has an author. Who is the author of Paul's letter of recommendation? Jesus Christ. You see, the Corinthian Christians were indeed Paul's letter of recommendation. Yet he realized that he did not write that letter. Jesus did. Paul is not trying to say, I made you the Christians that you are. He's not trying to say that. But you know what he is saying? He's saying, God used me to make you the Christians that you are. I think it's interesting. Paul, I think, knew that perfect balance between pride on the one side and false humility on the other side. Pride on the one side would say, I have made you the Christians that you are. False humility would say, I didn't do anything. I was just there, and somehow the Lord did it. You know, Paul said, you bet I did something, Paul said. I worked hard. God used me. It was God's work, but he did use me. And so Paul would say, I didn't make you the Christians you are, but he would say, God did use me to make you the Christians that you are. And so, notice to here, I'd say, the, the letter writer is, is Jesus, but he says, verse 3, ministered by us. Let me put it in a further point. I think Paul is saying that his letter of recommendation has a pen. Who was the pen? Paul was. Jesus is the author. Paul's the pen. And look at here, verse 3, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of God. Paul's letter of recommendation has an ink. What's the ink? The Holy Spirit. And it was written on something. What was it written on? Not on tablets of flesh or excuse me, on tablets of flesh, that is the heart. In other words, Paul's letter of recommendation has a paper that is the heart of the Corinthian Christians. So I think what he's doing is just sort of, well, if I could say, he's kind of tripping out on this idea of a letter of recommendation. Jesus is the author, Paul's the pen, uh, the Holy Spirit's the ink, and the Corinthians themselves, their hearts are the flesh or the paper uh, that it's being written on. He says, you want to know what kind of ministry I have? Look at my letter of recommendation. Now he goes on here, verse 4. And we have such trust through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything is being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God, 
who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. In other words, Paul begins these verses in verse 4. He says, we have such trust through Christ toward God. Paul knows that what he has just written might sound proud in the ears of the Corinthian Christians. It is no small, say, no, it is no small thing to say, you are my letter of recommendation. Or to say, I am a pen in God's hands. You see how somebody might say, well, you know, that's proud of you to say that, Paul. But Paul says, listen, those are big ideas, I'll admit. But he says, verse 3, and we have such trust through Christ towards God. In other words, the, the place I have for thinking such big things, it's in Jesus, it's not in me. Then he goes on to say, and this is so precious, look at verse 5 carefully, not that we are sufficient of ourselves. Paul did not consider himself sufficient for the great task of changing lives for Jesus. Only Jesus was sufficient for such a big job. I think of this in a couple ways. First of all, many people refuse to be used by God because they think of themselves as not being ready. I'm not ready. I'm not ready. I'm not sufficient. I'm not sufficient. God can't use me. I'm not ready. I'm not sufficient. You know what God's telling you? You're right. You're not sufficient. You're exactly where I want you to be. Look at verse 5 again. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves. Friends, that's the place of ministry. You don't have to be sufficient of yourself. That's not a prerequisite for ministry. If we were ready or worthy, then the sufficiency would be in ourselves, not from God. Let me tell you something else. No matter what place of serving God you might be in right now in your life, whether it's in your home, at your business, here at the church, wherever God has you serving Him right now, if you're in a place where you can minister adequately from your own sufficiency... You're not where the Lord wants you to be. He wants you to go out to deeper water. See, we just want to get to that comfortable place where we just don't have to rely on the Lord so much, don't we? Where we're sufficient in ourselves. God says, no, no, no. Deeper water for you. You need to go out to a place where the sufficiency is just in Jesus Christ. I think that is not only something that we need to keep in mind, but it's a glorious place of power, my friends. You know what it means to say your sufficiency is of God? How about this? Uh, who's a really rich man in the world right now? Bill Gates, right? What if I go around, my sufficiency is of Bill Gates? I mean, then I'd have a lot of sufficiency, wouldn't I? Not necessarily in myself. You know what? If it was true that my sufficiency was in Bill Gates, if he supplied everything I need, if he was my sufficiency, I wouldn't have to have a dollar on me. I could be as poor as a beggar. But you know what? doesn't matter. Because the person in whom my sufficiency is, he's wealthy. Friends, it doesn't matter if you're poor. It doesn't matter if you're spiritually poor. It doesn't matter if you're needy. child doesn't care about that. You know, if a child has completely empty pockets, but dad has a big wad of bills, what does the child care? Because their father is their sufficiency. See, my friends, it means something that God is our sufficiency. It means that he'll take care of us. He really is our sufficiency. Oh, so friends, it's a place for humility, but it's a place for great boldness and power. I don't have to be sufficient myself. Jesus Christ can be my sufficiency. And might I say that he is our sufficiency, and that's such a place of rest. Is he enough for you? You know, for some people it's not. It's not. 
Oh, oh, my life. Oh, let me tell you about the problems in my life. Oh, let me tell you. You know, let's just draw close to the Lord right now. Let's, yeah, right. Okay, I've done that. Come on. Your sufficiency isn't in Jesus Christ, is it? You know, if you're kind of, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. All right, yeah, I've done that. Now what? Now fix my problem. Jesus Christ really does want, his, want to make you sufficient in him. It goes on here in verse 6, and this is thrilling, and he says, who also made us sufficient as ministers of a new covenant. Friends, that's a, that's a great word there, new covenant. See, the Greek word there for covenant had the ordinary meaning of a last will and testament. You see, when God makes his new covenant with us, it's as if it was Jesus' last will and testament. And that means a few things. First of all, it only goes into effect after somebody dies, right? So Jesus had to die for it to go into effect. But here's the other great thing, is that typically speak, I'm talking about normal procedures, you don't negotiate a last will and testament. You might think that you come here and, and you, you kind of want to negotiate your deal with God. You know, okay, God, you know, I'll do this for you, you do this for me, I'll serve you this way, I'll serve you that way, you know, we'll work out, I've got my own personal understanding with God. Yeah, right. No way. You don't cut your own deal with the Lord. He lays down one deal for all of humanity, and you accept it or you reject it. God is not into negotiating covenants with people. He lays down a covenant, and if you want to part in it, then you trust in Jesus Christ. Let me put it to you one way. In the words of one Greek scholar, he says that this word covenant describes an arrangement made by one party with complete power, which the other party may accept or reject, but may not alter. It's a covenant offered by God to man, and it's no compact between two parties coming together on equal terms. In other words, this isn't you know, two equal parties coming together for a little bargain. God's saying, this is it, take it or leave it. Friends, this is the new covenant, the covenant by which we can have a relationship with God centered around Jesus and centered around what Jesus has done for us. And notice what he says about this new covenant. In verse 6, he says, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. In other words, Paul is contrasting the letter and the Spirit. What does he mean by this? I think some people have taken this in a very wrong way and have done some real damage in their Christian lives because of it. Some people have thought that this is the letter. And then the spirit, well, that's the, the wild experiences that you can have. That's the wild allegorical interpretations you can That's dreams and prophecies and visions. And they say, brother, the letter kills. But the Spirit gives life. Let's not get too much into this word. What's the Spirit doing? Friends, that isn't what Paul's saying at all. Nor is Paul saying, well, you can't take the letter of what this is saying. You need to look for the spiritual meaning hidden behind it. No, he means the, the real literal meaning. What Paul is simply doing is showing us the superiority of the new covenant over the old covenant. The letter is the law in its outward sense, written on tablets of stone. The letter of the law came by the Old Covenant. It was good in and of itself, but you know what the problem with the law was? You know what the problem with the Ten Commandments was when Moses brought it down from Sinai? It gave the person no power to fulfill it. I could give you a great big list of rules and say, fulfill all these rules, do all this, do all that. Here's the rules, you've got to keep them. 
But if I don't give you any power by which you can keep those rules, then it's just a list of rules. Matter of fact, if you notice here in verse 6, Paul says that the letter kills. Do you know how the letter kills? Because it shows you that you're a guilty sinner. Here it is. Thou shalt not steal. Anybody in this room never stolen? Never stolen anything in your life? Let's talk about the law about stealing right now. And I'll go through it, and I'll talk about the law of sin. I'll get every one of you to almost cower under your seat before we're done here. <laughs> and you know what you say? You say, the letter kills. It's killing me, man. It's killing me. I'm a guilty sinner. I've stolen. There's no way out of this. Oh, I thought I could calm my conscience. I haven't stolen very much because I haven't stolen more than them because I haven't stolen more of them. I thought I'd calm it because I never got caught. No, you know, we can deal with all of those things, believe you me. My friends, the letter kills us before God. It thoroughly and completely establishes our guilt. It's just like what Paul says in Romans 7. Let me read this to you. He says, For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died what we were upheld by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not the oldness of the letter. In other words, instead of having a relationship with God based on the letter of the law, instead, now the Spirit is given to us as the law written on our hearts. He is in us to guide us and to be our law. And what's more effective in getting us to really walk with the Lord? A list of rules on the wall or a person indwelling in us speaking to our hearts about obedience? Let me put it to you this way. What's more effective you in getting you to obey the speed limit? A sign that says speed limit, 65 miles an hour, or a person in a policeman's uniform <laughs> driving on the freeway? Right? What do you do when you see the sign? Zoom. <laughs> when you see the policeman, suddenly this desire to obey wells up within your heart, right? Friends, you know what the Lord has said? He said, listen, we're still going to post the speed limit up there, right? You don't tear down the speed limit signs just because you got a policeman. God says, you know what? I'm going to give you a personal policeman who really loves you and cares for you, and I'm going to put him in your heart, and he'll speak to you about the law. See, my friends, it isn't that the Holy Spirit replaces the written law, but he completes and fulfills the work of the written law in our hearts. The Spirit gives life, and with the spiritual life, we can live the law of God. So, my friends, please understand this. When Paul says in verse 6, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life, Paul isn't saying that we can throw away our Bibles. He isn't saying that we can neglect our Bibles. He doesn't say, well, this is the letter, get rid of this. No, no. It's not that we can get rid of our Bibles because we now have the Spirit. Instead, the Spirit makes us alive to the letter, fulfilling and completing the work of the letter in us. And we also should not think for a moment that this is somehow telling us, or giving us permission to live our Christian life on experiences and mystical interpretations of the Bible. Experiences and seeing allegories in the Bible are fine, but each must be proved true and supported by studying the literal meaning of the Bible. The spirit and the letter are not enemies. They're friends. 
One doesn't work to the exclusion of the other, but one is incomplete without the other. Now, after bringing up this matter of the Old Covenant and New Covenant, Paul's carrying on the point here, beginning at verse 7. He says, But if the ministry of death, written and engraved on stones, was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. For if what is passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. Well, there's a lot of glory going on in those verses. Let me explain to you here what's happening. Paul begins in verse 7, calling the the old covenant, the, the law of Moses, the ministry of death. Doesn't that seem like a little harsh? Man, lighten up a little bit, Paul. What are you, anti-law, anti-Moses? Paul says no. He's just being honest with us. This is what the law does to us. The law slays us as guilty sinners before God so that we can be resurrected by the new covenant. Now, this is the problem with many people today in their walk with God. They've never been slayed by the law. They have no awareness that they've ever been a sinner. And so when you talk about salvation in Jesus Christ, if they could articulate it, which usually they can't, but if they could articulate it, they would ask the very valid question, saved from what? They've never had any reason to believe that God was rightfully angry at them for their sin. Salvation? Saved from what? Friends, the law has to slay us. We need to have that ministry of death at work in our heart so that we can know what it's like to have the ministry of life. Friends, we need to be slain as guilty sinners before God so that we can be resurrected by the new covenant. Now, again, it's not that there was a problem with the law. shouldn't go around blaming the law. Well, that dumb old law of Moses. Uh, God's standard, that's what the problem is. No, no, there's nothing wrong with God's standard. Problems with us. We can't keep it. And he says here in verse 7, If the ministry of death, written and engraved on stones, was glorious. Well, was it glorious? Friends, there was quite a glory associated with the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. At the time that the law was given to Moses on Mount Sinai, Mount Sinai was surrounded with smoke. There was earthquakes, thunder, lightning, a trumpet blast from heaven, and the voice of God himself. Most of all, the glory of the Old Covenant was shown, if you notice these verses, in the face of Moses and in the glory of his countenance. Look at it in verse 7. They could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance. Friends, there was a glory associated with the giving of the Old Covenant. Now, what... Paul is referring to, when he talks about the face of Moses, he's referring to something back in Exodus chapter 34. Where it describes that when Moses would go and speak with God, his face would be so shining with a radiance that when he would come down from speaking with God, he would wear a veil over his face. Why? Now, at first glance, we might think that 
The reason why Moses wore the veil was because he didn't want people to be freaked out by the glory that they saw. That's not the reason. What was the reason? Paul's going to deal with it in a little bit, so I'll just throw out that little teaser for anticipation. (laughs) But what I want you to see was that the radiant face of Moses was a fading glory. Do you see this in verse 7? Because of the glory of the countenance, which glory was passing away. The glory of the old covenant shining through the face of Moses was a fading glory, but the glory of the new covenant endures without fading. Therefore, he says, how much will the, verse 8, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? Listen, if there was a glory associated with the ministry of the letter, right? How much more glorious will be that which is associated with the ministry of the Spirit? So friends, if the old covenant which brought death had this kind of glory, we should expect even greater glory in the new covenant, which brings the ministry of the Spirit and life. The old covenant was a ministry of condemnation, but the new covenant is a ministry of righteousness. The old covenant is passing away, but the new covenant remains. No wonder that the new covenant is much more glorious. Friends, Paul will say it here if you look at verse 9, for the ministry of condemnation had glory. The old covenant had glory, but it is far outshone by the glory of the new covenant. You know, it's fall right now. You ever see that autumn moon hanging in the sky out there? We had a full moon not too long ago, and you just looked at that thing on the nighttime, and it was so big, so bright. I mean, you could take a book out and and read by the light of that moon. It's a bright moon. But it's nothing once the sun comes up. And that's what Paul's saying. Listen, glory, glory. Hey, man, that's a bright moon, that old covenant. But you just wait till the new covenant comes up. Compared to the new covenant, the old covenant had no glory because of the glory that excels in the new covenant. That's not all that's better about the new covenant. Take a look at verse 12. He says, therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech, unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. Paul says, listen, we we have hope. Our hope is in a more glorious covenant. We have a more glorious hope. And because of this hope, we can use a more boldness or great boldness of speech. Now, the old covenant was restricted. It separated a man from God. But the new covenant brings us into God and enables us to come boldly to him. Not like Moses. Moses, as it says here, had to put a veil over his face. You know, not even Moses had real boldness under the old covenant. A veil is not a bold thing to wear. It's a barrier. It's a place of hiding. Moses lacked boldness, that is at least compared to Paul, because the covenant that he ministered unto was fading away fading in glory. That's the point here. Take a look here. In verse 13, he says, unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face, so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. You see, the veil of Moses hid his face, so that the children of Israel could not see any of the glory from his face. But friends, the real point here is that they didn't want the children of Israel to see the passing of the glory. Paul says that the Jews of Jesus' day, 
of, of his day were unable to see that the glory of Moses' ministry had faded in comparison to the ministry of Jesus. That's the point. Look at it again, verse 13. Unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face, so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away, but their minds were hardened, for until this day the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament, because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Friends, Paul says that the Jews of his day were unable to see that the glory of Moses' ministry was a fading glory compared to the ministry of Jesus. If the veil were lifted, they could see the glory of Moses' ministry had faded, and then they would want to look at Jesus. But you see, when Moses came down from the mountain, he wore that veil. Why did he wear the veil? Not so that the people would be freaked out at his shining face. He wore the veil so that they wouldn't be freaked when the glory faded. They wouldn't say, gee, Moses, looked a lot brighter yesterday. What's the matter? Got a little mad at Mrs. Moses? Or yelled at the kids this morning, huh, Moses? What's up with that? Fading glory, huh, brother? You see, God didn't want them to see that the glory from his face would fade. And so what did the veil prevent them from seeing? The fading glory of the old covenant. You know what Paul says? He goes, that veil is still on the heart of my Jewish brethren. They can't see the fading glory of the old covenant. If the veil was taken away, they could see that compared to Jesus, Moses has a faded glory. And let's look to Jesus instead. But since the same veil that hid Moses' face, he says it now lies on their heart. They still think that there's something superior. They still think there's something more glorious in the ministry of Moses. Because they can't see behind the veil. But, you see what he says here? Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Yes, it can be said of the Jews that a veil lies on their heart, but the veil can be taken away in Jesus. You know, many Christians with a heart to preach to their Jewish friends have wondered why it is so rarely as simple as just showing them that Jesus is the Messiah. I find this wonderful phenomenon, oftentimes in, in young Christians. They'll read Isaiah 53 for the first time. They're like, oh, 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 I can't believe, oh, uh, Isaiah. And they'll go run and they'll go show it to a Jew. Well, uh, man, this, oh, man, you, uh, yeah. And they're like, oh, there's no way that anybody could not believe in the face. See? And they're like, uh-huh, uh-huh, just read. And they'll read it. And, yeah, so? What's wrong? Why? A veil lies on their heart. Unless God does a work in them, they will never turn their heart to the Lord and have the veil taken away. And they will never see the fading glory of Moses' covenant and the surpassing glory of Jesus and their new covenant. Let me tell you something. If you go to a place where there's a community of Orthodox Jews and you see them, you go to, to Jerusalem and see them there at the Western Wall and there they are praying and there they are devoted to their religion. Let me tell you something about each and every one of those people praying there at the Western Wall. If you were to ask them, was the ministry of Moses glorious? They would say, absolutely it was. 
and say, well, was the ministry of Jesus glorious? They'd say, what are you talking about? But if the veil was taken away and they could see the faded glory of Moses' ministry and see the surpassing glory of Jesus' ministry set by side by side, then they'd have an understanding. But they can't see it because the veil is there. But of course, it could be said that the Jews are not the only ones for whom a veil lies on their heart. Gentiles also have veils that separate them from seeing Jesus and his work for us clearly. But friends, Jesus is more than able to take those veils away. Might I say that this points to the essential need of prayer in evangelism. How does that veil get taken away? What, can you take it away? Can the person themselves necessarily take it away? No, it's taken away as they turn to the Lord and God draws them to him. Friends, you got somebody you really want to see come to Jesus Christ? Now, you should look for an opportunity to talk to them about Jesus. But even more important than you talking to them about God is you need to talk to God about them. If you only had one thing to do in evangelism, it would be better for you to talk to God about men than to talk to men about God. Now, thank heavens we don't have to choose between the two, do we? We can and we should be doing both. But friends, it's so important. He goes on here, it's just marvelous how he ends the chapter here, verse 17. Now, the Lord is the Spirit. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. I just love how it begins here in verse 17 by saying the Lord is the Spirit. And I could get off on quite an extended tangent on this if, if we so desired. Paul is laying something out very clearly here that the Holy Spirit is a person and that he is the Lord God Almighty. In other words, friends, we believe in the Trinity. The God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are all God. One God in three persons. How does it work together? How can one plus one plus one equal one? I don't know. I know that one times one times one can all equal one. The Bible just tells us we have one God in three persons. The Bible tells us very plainly here that the Lord is the Spirit. Do you need anything more than that? I, I don't see where the wiggle room is on that one, folks. It's kind of hard to spin that some other way. The Lord is the Spirit. What he's saying is that the Holy Spirit is God, just as Jesus and the Father are. And notice what else he says in verse 17. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Now, you need to follow what Paul's thinking is here. Paul's thinking goes like this. When Moses went into God's presence, he had the liberty to take off the veil. The veil that Moses wore, he didn't wear it all the time. When he went into the presence of the Lord, he took off the veil. The presence of the Lord gave him this liberty. Now, we have the Holy Spirit who is the Lord. We live in the Spirit's presence because he is given to us under the new covenant. So just as Moses had the liberty to relate to God without a veil in the presence of the Lord, so we have liberty because of the presence of the Lord. Now, we should also consider what Paul is not saying. This has been one of the more famously misapplied scriptures of the New Testament. It's been used to justify just about every Pentecostal or charismatic excess. 
Because the thinking goes like this. You can do whatever you want in church. You can, you know, shout and run around and jump up and down and do jumping jacks and distract everybody else or do whatever. You can bark or roar or, you know, do whatever you want. Why? Because where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Well, friends, we have great liberty in our relationship with God through what Jesus has done and through what the Holy Spirit is doing. But can I tell you what we never have the liberty to do? We never have the liberty to disobey what the Spirit has said in the Word of God. That's not liberty. That's bondage. And so the idea that there doesn't have to be any rules, no obedience to the Word of God because we have liberty under the Spirit. No, that's setting the Word in opposition to the Spirit. And there is no opposition between the Word and the Spirit. You see, what Paul really has in mind is the liberty of access. He talked before about having great boldness of speech. Boldness is a word that belongs with liberty. And because of the great work of the Holy Spirit in us through the new covenant, we have a bold, liberated relationship with God. That's what we need to see. That's the liberty that we have. You don't have to be afraid before God anymore. Did the law slay you? Then be risen again in Jesus Christ and come with boldness before the Lord. You don't have to act like a slain man before the Lord anymore. You don't have to act like a woman under bondage. Come before the Lord. You're free now. Jesus Christ has set you free. Take advantage of that boldness, of that liberty. Then we come to verse 18, and this this is precious, friends. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Paul is giving an invitation to every Christian, and he says, you, you Christian, you come before God now with an unveiled face. No barrier between you and the Lord. Nothing to hinder that intimacy of relationship. And by the way, he's not talking about an intimacy of relationship and a transforming power that's the property of just a few privileged Christians. It can belong to everyone. He says, we all with unveiled face. By the way, how do you get that unveiled face? Look at verse 16. When one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. You want an unveiled face before the Lord tonight? Then turn to the Lord. He will take away the veil, and then you can be one of the we all who with an unveiled face. What do they do? Look at it. Beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. What does that mean? Well, we can see the glory of the Lord, but we can't see his glory perfectly. You see, a mirror in the ancient world did not give nearly as good a reflection as mirrors do today. Ancient mirrors were made of polished metal, and they gave kind of a clouded or fuzzy or somewhat distorted image. Paul is saying, we can see the glory of the Lord, but we can't see it perfectly yet. We can't see it with crystal clarity. And what happens here? As we see the glory of the Lord, as we are beholding with unveiled face, as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, what's happening? We are being transformed. As we behold the glory of God, we will be transformed. God will change our lives, and he'll change us from the inside out. That's something that the law could never do. Oh, friends, the Old Covenant had its glory, 
but it could never transform our lives. God uses the new covenant to make us transformed people. You've had your sights way too low. You thought that God wanted to clean up a couple areas in your life. You thought that God wanted to make you a nicer person. You know what? God doesn't want nice people. He wants new men and new women. He wants transformed people. God doesn't want to do a little clean-up, a little fix-up in this area, that area. He wants to transform you. Everybody wants to know, how can I change? Well, no, not honestly. Honestly, not everybody wants to know that. Everybody wants to know, how can you change? That's what they want to know, right? <laughs> Friends, let me tell you, I hope you're not confident about your ability to change anybody else. You're not sufficient for it. Have you just given up on that already? If you haven't, just go ahead and do it now. Just don't leave this room with any illusions. Just give it up. But if you want change to come in your life, or if change is going to happen in the life of somebody else, friends, the best and the most enduring change comes into our lives when we are transformed by time spent with the Lord. Now, I will agree that there are other ways to change your life. I can change your life through guilt. I can change my life through willpower. You can have your life changed by coercion. But none of those ways are as deep and long-lasting as the transformation that comes by the Spirit of God as we spend time in the presence of the Lord. Let me tell you what it requires, friends. Look at it, verse 18. Beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. That word means something. The word that he uses for beholding means more than a casual look. It means a careful study. We have something to behold, something to study. We're transformed by the glory of the Lord, but only if we'll carefully study it. Let me tell you, a a two-minute devotion a day isn't going to do it. Not going to do it. I'm not saying that's bad. It's better than spending two minutes with something else. But do you feel the ache in your heart to be transformed by the glory of God? then you need to be beholding as in a mirror the glory. You see what he says here in verse 18? Are being transformed into the same image. What's the same image? It's the image that we're beholding in the mirror. You see, it's kind of funny. It's like one of those mirrors in the fairy tale, right? You look into the mirror and you don't see your face. Who do you see? You see God's face. You don't see it perfectly. You see it as in a mirror. But you see, you see the face of the Lord. And as you spend time with God, as you behold Him, you become like Him. You are transformed into the same image as the Lord. When we spend time beholding the glory of, God, of the God of love and grace and peace and righteousness, we grow in love and grace and peace and righteousness. You know, friends, I don't know what you're going through in your life right now. I don't know what kind of pain you might be experiencing, what kind of crisis point. And the last thing I want to do is imply to you, well, just read your Bible and pray and everything will be better. As if that was some kind of just band-aid to slap on top of. But I will tell you this. You're never going to find a lasting solution to what you're going through unless you draw close to God. You know how you draw close to God? the word of God and prayer and being with his people. 
Well, you just tell me to throw a few Bible verses at it. No, no. Spend time with the Lord. Well, no, you see what I need? I need to read this book. I, I got, there's these books there at the, the Christian bookstore they told me to read. And they, you know what? God may use those books in your life. He may. But make sure you're doing the base thing first. There's a guy down at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, named Romaine. Romaine is one of the assistant pastors there at Calvary Costa Mesa. He's been there a long time. He has kind of a gruff exterior and probably a gruff interior as well. And Romaine, on more than one occasion, I don't know if this is his practice throughout all the years, but at one time I heard a tape of his and he described his counseling procedure. You know, and he'd say, oh, I've got this problem. You know, before I said, stop, he'd say, when's the last time you read your Bible? Well, you know, this and that. Go home and read your Bible and come back and talk to me. And, you know, some people say, well, he's just throwing Bible verses. Friends, listen, I don't care whatever other means God may use to get things right in your life, right? Whatever counselors, whatever books, whatever things, whatever. God may use any number of things. But doesn't it make sense that you should be doing the basic things first before you seek out those other things, right? Get that stuff down first. Right? Let's make sure the basics are there. Let's make sure we're spending time with the Lord and in the Word and in prayer. Let's make sure that's all there first. Then let's look to the other stuff. Instead of doing what we usually do. Looking everywhere else first. And when it all fails and blows, oh God, what should I do? And then everything is all we go, well, okay, then the Lord makes our needs when we finally look to Him. Oh, my friend. But you see, it's, it's true that, that this is how we can know if someone really is spending time with the Lord. If they're being transformed into the same image. I read these books of these great men of God of years past. It always seems like they're hundreds of years ago that these men lived. You know, and they're the stories of, you know, I spent five hours this morning in such sweet communion with the Lord rising at 2 o'clock, and then by 7 o'clock I was ready to make my way of the day. And the time went just like that, you know, as they always say. And it may or may not have been the case, who knows. But I will tell you something, if it was true, you could have told it by looking at the guy's life. I don't know, he could have been on his knees for five hours thinking of pot roast, for all we know, right? <laughs> But the bottom line is this, if he was really fellowshipping with God, and if you and I are really fellowshipping with God, it will show in our lives. We'll be transformed in the same image. Don't tell me how much you pray. Don't tell me how much you're into the Word. Don't tell me, you know, this or that. If it's for real, I can see it in your life. I can see that the image of Jesus Christ is there in your life. I can see it. But then again, a lot of it does depend on what we see when we look into God's mirror. You know, in the analogy, God's mirror is not a mirror that shows us uh, what we are as much as it shows us what we will become. And what we will become is based on what our picture is of who God is. If you have a false picture of God, then you're going to see that false picture of God in God's mirror, and you're going to be transformed into that image. 
much to your harm for both now and eternity. Friends, not everybody sees the truth when they look into the mirror. I read a story about a 30-year-old man named David. He gets up every morning, and in his morning routine, he only gets as far as the bedroom mirror, and when he looks in the bedroom mirror, he sees a horribly distorted face, a crooked, swollen nose covered with scars and a bulging eye. The, The pain from this man's deformities caused him to quit college and move in with his parents 10 years before. He had cosmetic surgery four times, but it didn't make any difference. You know why? Because the problems with David's appearance are only in his mind. Experts even have a name for it. They call it body dysmorphic disorder, or BDD. It causes people to imagine themselves as deformed, ugly people. Some experts say that it's a hidden epidemic. One psychiatrist said, patients are virtually coming out of the woodwork. I'm meeting with one new patient each week. Now, most sufferers from this malady are convinced that the problem is with their face. The afflicted live with such an overwhelming sense of shame that they can barely function. One uh, young teacher in Boston tried to continue her job teaching, but she would run out in the middle of class afraid that her imagined hideous appearance was showing through through her thick makeup. A Denver businessman would call his mother from the office 15 times a day for reassurance that he did not look grotesque, and he would spend hours in the bathroom uh, stall with a pocket mirror trying to figure out a way to improve his appearance. Some sufferers from this malady try to uh, cope with harmful rituals. They cut themselves to bleed the damaged area but they are almost always convinced that the problem is with their body, not with their mind. They don't want to see a psychiatrist. They want to see a plastic surgeon. Friends, you see, that that says a couple things. First of all, you need to have a proper understanding of who God is. That's why you need to be in the Word. You need to be able to see an accurate picture of the Lord when you're drawing close to Him. And I'm not talking about actually visualizing God, of course. I'm talking about your idea of who God is and His character and His nature. Friends, it also, it also shows that if we look into God's mirror, we can be transformed into His image and not into something ugly. But your mind can play awful tricks on you and make you think things that aren't real in your relationship before the Lord. When we behold the picture of God as he is in truth, we will be transformed into his image. You know what it says in Romans 8.29? For he whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his Son. That's where God wants you, in the image of Jesus Christ. And what is one of the main mechanisms he uses? You beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. And notice what it says here in verse 18, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed. The work of transformation is a process. You're being transformed. It isn't complete yet. Paul didn't say we have been transformed. Paul didn't say I was transformed. It's a process. It isn't complete yet. And nobody should expect it to be complete in themselves or in others. No one comes away from one incredible time with the Lord perfectly transformed. You know, oh, I had such sweet communion with the Lord. Well, that fixed it. I'm transformed. Thank you, Jesus. All right, I'm going on now. 
No, no, my friends, we're being transformed. Notice what it says here in verse 18. We're transformed from glory to glory. The work of transformation is a continual progression. It works from glory to glory. Can I tell you something tonight? It does not have to work from backsliding to glory to backsliding to glory to backsliding to glory. You can grow from glory to glory. A continual progression with the Lord. How? Notice at the end, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Now, I think Paul, in those phrases, emphasizing two things. First of all, this access to God and His transforming presence is ours by a new covenant because it's through the new covenant that we're given the Spirit of the Lord. You're not going to find this access. You're not going to find this transforming presence through the old covenant, through a legal relationship with God. No, it's got to be by a spiritual relationship. But secondly, this work of transformation is really God's work in us. How does it happen? How are you transformed? Well, I'm transformed because I spent time with the Lord. No. You're transformed by the Spirit of the Lord, not by the will or the effort of man. You don't achieve spiritual transformation. You don't earn spiritual transformation by beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. You know what you just do? You just put yourself in a place where you can be transformed by the Spirit of the Lord. And that's where the Lord wants us to be. What a privilege we have. God has opened up the gates of heaven that come in. Now, if you wanted to come to God under the old covenant, if you wanted to come to the most intimate place of his presence, you'd walk up to the temple. You'd have to walk through gates. Whoa, wait a minute. If you're not a Jew, you can't go through those gates. Sorry, stay here. You've got to stay out in the court of the Gentiles. All right, I'm a Jew. I can go in. Go through. Well, have you had the proper cleansing ceremony? Well, no, I haven't. Well, no, I have. I can go through, but... Another place of exclusion. Well, uh, are you a woman? Because if you're a woman, you can't go in any further. You've got to stay in the court of the women. No, I'm a man. I can go in. Okay, But you see, you're more and more excluded along the way. You walk in through the temple gates. You go in. You go in the temple area where they're offering sacrifices. You're there. You, well, do you have a sacrifice to offer? No, I don't. Well, you stay outside. Okay, I have a sacrifice. I can come inside. You come and bring your sacrifice. You're there. Well, I want to go in further. I want to go into the temple. Well, wait a minute. Are you a priest? Well, wait a minute. Are, are, are you a priest, a descendant of Aaron? Well, yeah, okay, I'm a descendant of Aaron. I can go in there. You go, you find it, you get into the temple, you're getting closer and closer to the prince, but you see exclusion, 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 exclusion. Finally, you're into the temple and you're walking up there and you see in front of you in this great big room, you see this incredible sheet of fabric in front of you with the artistic designs of cherubim. And you know that behind that sheet of fabric, when I say sheet, I mean a wall of fabric. I'm not talking about a little chiffon curtain. I'm talking about a wall of fabric in front of you. And you know that behind that veil, behind that curtain, that wall of fabric, lies the Holy of Holies, the sacred presence of God. You know what they say? Wait, are you the high priest? Yeah, I'm the high priest. Wait, is it the Day of Atonement? Yeah, it's a day. Wait, do you have sacrificial blood? You know what God did? By the work of Jesus Christ, by the indwelling Holy Spirit in us, He knocked down each one of those barriers. 
He knocked down the outer courts of the temple. He knocked down the court of the women. He knocked down the gates. He knocked down the the doorway or the veil into the temple. And he ripped the veil into the Holy of Holies from top to bottom and said, come into my presence, behold my glory, and be transformed. That's glorious. So right now, God says, enter in. Come into my presence. Come worship me and love me and fellowship with me. I will transform. Father, we need to be transformed. We need it to happen for real, Lord. So we come into your presence here tonight. We ask that you'd speak to our hearts in worship. That you'd give us a freedom and a liberty in you, Lord, to come and take advantage of the access that you've given us in Jesus Christ. Lord, let us have a sense of your glory. We draw near, we pray in Jesus.